Hello, and welcome again to another episode of Five Playing Questions, a podcast that proposes five questions to Indigenous artists, creators, musicians, writers, movers and shakers, and culture bears, people in the community that are doing great things for their communities. I'm Joe Williams, your host for this conversation. I'm director of the Indigenous Art Programs at the Plains Art Museum. My goal is to showcase these amazing people in our Indigenous communities from around the region and country. I want to introduce you to Michaela Shirley. Michaela Pollitt Shirley is Water Edge Clan, born for Bitterwater Clan. Her maternal grandpa is Salt Clan, and her paternal grandpa is Coyote Pass Clan. She is a program manager for the Indigenous Design and Planning Institute at University of New Mexico. Michaela is a PhD student at the UNM American Studies Department. Her areas of expertise include urban planning, community development, and Indigenous planning, with research interest in community school relationships, biographies on landscape, Dene studies, and critical Indigenous studies, critical regional studies, and hemispheric Indigenous comparative studies. Michaela presents at conferences, offering keynotes, leading workshops, community engagement activities, and conducting content analysis of community engagement work, and serves as conference committees as needed. She has published about Indigenous planning, creative placemaking, place knowing, and Dene centered arts management. She serves on multiple boards and committees across the region and the country. So before we jump into this this wonderful conversation uh, with Michaela, uh, it's really exciting to be able to sit down with an architect, uh, someone who has that background and who is uh, really engaged in community work. And yeah, I just uh, am, am really excited about this conversation. So with that said, let's jump into this conversation with Michaela Paulette Shirley. Thank you so much for joining us for Five Main Questions. It's really great to have you here. Yes, happy to be here. Thank you for the invite. Absolutely. Uh, would you be able to introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and where you're from. So, Yad A, Michaela Shirley Inshka, Twapahana Shledo, Twudich Ini Bashishin, Ashihindashiche, Maidish Gishni Dashanella, Kendathluchi De Nasha. So good morning, everyone, if you're listening to this in the morning. Uh, my name is Michaela Shirley. I'm originally from a community called Kintlachi. Uh, it's located in the northeastern portion of Arizona. I provided my clans for you as a Dine person. So in English, I am Water Edge, born for bitter water. And my paternal grandparent is um, Salt. And my paternal grandparent is Coyote Pass Clan. I am currently the program manager at the Indigenous Design and Planning Institute at UNM, the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, um, as well as a, a PhD student in American Studies also at UNM. Um, just finishing up my coursework and then launching into the next big part of my process in that, which is preparing for my comprehensive exams. And I'm also proud to say I am a new mother of a 13-month-old son, Atlas Shirley. Well, congratulate. congratulations on all that, but of course for being a new mother. Yes, it was just about high time that that was going to occur for me. <laughs> so who are your biggest influences? First, I would have to say they are my parents, uh, Paul and Dolly Shirley, and then second to them would be my paternal grandma, 
who's my dad's mom, Isabel Shirley. And um, third would be my mentor and colleague, Dr. Ted Hohola, who is, you know, the co-founder, excuse me, the founder and director of the Indigenous Design and Planning Institute where I work. Um, he's Isleta Pueblo and has just been like a really great person for me over the course of the years. Uh, he's known me since I was a sophomore in undergrad when I had my days at Arizona State University when he was visiting professor. And uh, last but not least would definitely be my son, Atlas. I love him so much. And, you know, I think really taking on the whole uh, idea of intergenerational, like, wisdom, caretaking, and responsibility in ensuring that, like, he becomes um, the best that he can so that when he grows up, he also is able to offer something very uh, beautiful and meaningful to the world. I think it's really uh, special and it's important to have that sort of intentionality in in raising uh, a young one, you know, which is is often a challenge to any parent to sort of maintain that focus. And so it's 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 heartening to hear that that's your approach from the get go. Yes. And of course, you know, I think about my parents and my Nala uh, um because they were very formative into like what is the career that I wanted to eventually find myself in that would ultimately protect like um, practices that we do as a family, like sheep herding or, you know, uh, walking on the land to like herd the cattle or um, just, you know, very importantly, just the identity in our language that's like tied to the practices of those, of those things like sheep herding and, um, cause I'm not a fluent speaker of my language, but I am learning and they've been very patient in all of that, of my learning to, to keep encouraging me. Hmm. Let's talk a bit about your career. Um, how has that developed? Uh, you know, you're, you're in school, so you're definitely in the, the beginning stages still of all of this, but, uh, can you talk about your career college and, uh, post undergrad, of course? Okay, so I knew since fourth grade that I wanted to go to college, and that's because I had a dear friend of mine in elementary school who told me um, that he wanted to go to college, and um, the way he was going to go about going to college was getting a scholarship for cross-country, and um, I, I, I think that was because he was able to draw from his own family and how they were able to to launch themselves in college. Um, and so because I he was my friend, Myron, Myron Rintella, I wanted to impress him. And I said, yes, I want to go to college, too. And I'm going to do like you get a scholarship to go to college um, for running and so since then, I don't know if that's what kind of turned on in my mind then that I have to like, you know, get the best grades possible. I have to make myself this like well-rounded person. So when it comes time to like applying for scholarships, then I'm going to be like a really good, I'll have a really good shot at it. 
And um, so, yeah, I ended up doing that. And one of the big scholarships that I applied to was the Gates Millennium Scholarship. And I um, didn't know exactly where I was going to go. I started to tell myself, well, if I don't get this big scholarship or any good scholarship, I'm my plan is just going to go to community college and then from there, like launch into, a, you know, a bachelor's um, four year degree program. And um, but then I got the news in like April of my senior year in 2007 that I got the scholarship. And at the time I was sitting on the Youth and Education Commission for the city of Phoenix because, um, again, I wanted to be this well-rounded individual and an opportunity presented itself. So I took that and um, also kind of like in taking that position, I, I wanted to um, kind of put Native people in places where you don't really expect them to be. And so a lot of um, a lot of that work was just like trying to to be a good a good representative of our people. And um, but anyways, in the on the commission, there was um, an academic officer who sat in the um, office at Arizona State University, and I told her the news, and she was like, "Oh my gosh, this is really." like, great. And how, uh, what is it that you want to study? Like, have you considered going to ASU? And I was like, well, I want to go to urban planning, uh, pursue urban planning as my degree. And she was like, well, we have an urban planning degree. I was like, oh, wow. Okay. So I went uh, and um, followed up with her and I had already missed all the deadlines, like uh, priority deadlines for scholarships, for placement in, um, undergraduate housing and just other merit-based scholarships. Um, and But because of this inroads with this academic officer, I was able to um, uh, find a place in a community that was specific to like the College of Design. So I was living with other um, undergraduates who were pursuing architecture, landscape architecture, graphic design, interior design, and industrial design and urban planning. So it was a really beautiful community. And um, so yeah, I I did all that. And then about my sophomore year, I uh, befriended some, uh, a couple of graduate students who were in the planning program at the master's level. And they told me, um, or they asked me, um, knowing that I'm, you know, Navajo or Native American, they asked me, um, do you know that there's a professor here who's coming from University of New Mexico? His name is uh, Ted Hohola. I think you should come to our class and uh, talk to him or at least get to hear him speak. So I said, okay. And then when I was on my way from the College of Design back to my dorm, I saw an older native man, like, you know, passed by me on a bike. And I was like, I wonder if that's him. So then I turned back around and he was uh, walking up his bike in front of the college. And I asked him, I said, hi, excuse me, are you Dr. Ted Hohola? 
He's like, yes, who's asking? I was like, oh, well, my name is Michaela Shirley. I'm Navajo and um, I'm an undergrad in the urban planning program. He's like, okay, well, you should come to my class. And it was, you know, um, so I went to that class and have not turned back ever since. And I, uh, part of my high school then also included um, being able to take um, dual credit classes for high school. Um, in that process, then I was able to acquire like some college credits. And so by the time I um, got to my junior or third year in undergrad, I was able to either make a determination to graduate early or stay on. And I chose to stay on because um, at the time, Ted and other faculty at other universities put together this indigenous planning exchange program. And um, it's like basically two universities in Mexico, two universities in the United States, and then two universities in Canada. And so I spent like, you know, a good half of my year um, in Winnipeg, Manitoba at the University of Manitoba, um, learning about indigenous planning, because again, it was like, if I'm going to find myself um, in the urban place doing planning work, then I would want to sort of like prepare myself for that kind of um, setting. And so I chose Manitoba over Saskatchewan, which was the more rural part of indigenous planning, if we wanted to learn that. Um, so yeah, that's what I did. And then uh, graduated, and I knew I needed to at least have a master's degree in planning to practice planning and get an entry-level planning position. So Ted, I told Ted that I want to go for my master's, and he was like, well, we have a master's program too, so you should um, consider applying to Albuquerque, um, UNM. I said, okay, so I did. I uh, got in and then, so I graduated from ASU. And then so the, that summer I spent um, making the move to New Mexico. And then that fall I started my, um, my uh, master's program in the planning program. But interestingly, it was also that same year in 2011 that he um, wanted to start the Indigenous Design and Planning Institute, IDPI. And so when um, I came to start my grad program, um, it was just perfect timing, serendipitous, you know, totally meant to be, because um, then throughout my whole graduate career um, and learning from Ted, I was able to like get um, graduate assistantships, um, project assistantships and research assistantships. Um, that, you know, helped me obtain some skills that I would need as an indigenous planner, but then also as, um, as a emerging professional. So, and then when I graduated uh, in 2015 with my master's, then I kind of like launched into my role as a um, program or professional intern. And the reason why is because it was a situation where I was overeducated and underexperienced. And so I needed to, um, yeah, be an intern for at least two years. Um, but there was a separation from um, 
the program manager at the time. So when she left, then it meant that I had to step up and it accelerated my two year into one year um, intern that put me into a program specialist position. And then as um, I continued to work hard and everything, then, uh, you know, found myself now in the program manager position. So there's that. And um, I've always known I wanted a PhD too. And so it just made uh, great sense for me to start that journey while I was at working for a university because, you know, not many people might know this, but when you are a full-time benefits eligible university employer, employee, um, they will pay for like part of your tuition. And you're, I've been so part-time at my PhD, in my PhD program since t- the fall of 2018 to now. Um, so it's been keeping me very busy and I would, you know, thank and attribute um, my decision to go into American studies uh, from Dr. Laura Harjo, who's Muskogee Creek. And um, she was once a faculty member here in our planning program. And so uh, she was the one who just like encouraged me to, to pursue that because I was telling her at the time, like, I kind of feel like my education up to this point hasn't really prepared me to think more critically about our places and how, you know, there's all of these um, systemic challenges that are just, um, that make up our existence. And if there's any way to sort of think more creatively about how we problem solve um, with planning and design, like then I'm all there. Um, And so that's what I'm getting now with my PhD program is just a more well-rounded and hopefully um, critical approach to community development, indigenous planning, and um, yeah, just trying to make a, a bigger impact of of the lives of native people, but specifically maybe my tribe, Navajo. <laughs> Sorry, that's a lot. Um, no, that's great. That's <laughs> yeah. No, the it's it's great to be able to sort of do that deep dive into who we are and what our, uh, what our hopes and intentions are. Right. Um, and that's, that's really where I think we, we start to really explore very important issues and things that come up, uh, during, uh, answers like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, it does bring us to where we cross paths back in 2019, 2020, 2019. Um, we both attended this Art Place America uh, event in Jackson, Mississippi, and you know the the intention of Art Place America was to address like community planning and development um, in not in rural places, but in in, in places where where we occupy. And I, I was really intrigued with with our conversation because you had talked about uh, not so much I don't if I remember correctly, it wasn't so much about architecture, but that's sort of the space that, that you, that you occupy. And I just love the idea that as, as native and indigenous people, you know, we're sort of stepping into not just those roles, but those leadership roles and sort of taking over those spaces. Yeah. So 
I know with Art Place America, a lot of what we contributed in that, like, you know, 10 year, uh, in their 10 year existence, um, was offering to them, um, you know, how do you start to cultivate and generate these conversations with across the United States? Because at that time, they funded about 23 indigenous projects. Um, and there wasn't a time that um, there was a time when we it dawned on us like, hey, maybe we should all get together and uh, meet each other and learn about like each of our respective projects and where we're coming from. Because as you already know, then too, like a lot of the philanthropic um, investments in Native community is small but growing. And so it becomes important then to uh, huddle so that we can um, kind of unite as a as a as a force um, to to keep working and like encouraging each other, and so that's where that was like one contribution we made to Art Place, and then the second to that was um, because we're academics and we are a research center, um, you know, we had to challenge what it meant to be uh, critical creative placemaking, because at the time um, we were doing uh, our work in SUNY Pueblo, where we were asking, um, we were telling the funders that they're already doing placemaking uh, because they're leveraging their arts and their culture in order to, you know, one, make a living, but also at the same time, retain what is important to them as Uni Pueblo people and like the practices of like their their daily lives in ceremony or in art making. And so you can't necessarily separate the two because they're so interwoven with each other. And so we didn't think that creative placemaking was a framework that could appropriately describe um, what, what that was for us. And neither did uh, other critiques that have come up from other indigenous people who talk about like place keeping it's you know, they're like, it's not about place making, it's more about, because our places are already made and we've just inherited them. It's more of like place keeping because we're struggling um, to maintain our ties to the land because oftentimes through different federal policies over the generations, we've been severed from that. And then it creates um, a disconnect um, and from our traditional territories. And then in our other conversations with um, uh, another Pueblo tribe, I think it was Santo Domingo Pueblo, we were doing some community engagement and the elder had told us uh, in one of the facilitated discussions that um, it's not about, uh, what's more important is being able to take our youth and walking them on the land we don't ever really do that with our children anymore. Instead, like they're tied to the TV, their iPad, their gaming stations, and there's uh, another level of that disconnect. And so um, we ended up like thinking through this concept called place knowing. And what that really means then is we are trying to find reconnections and ties back to our places by walking the land um, and 
getting to know the stories of, of the places from our ancestors and um, because, you know, like with the onslaught of all of these imposed federal policies that have um, greatly impacted negatively our language, um, our identity and um, our culture, then like we are also too living in this diaspora of who are we, what, where, where do we come from and why are we like, how do we get to this place? And a lot of our students then who come through the planning program and want to pursue a study like indigenous planning, indigenous design, indigenous architecture, indigenous landscape architecture is really uh, coming home to themselves and who they are um, because oftentimes like within our own families and I can say this of mine, yeah, we weren't taught the language because you were probably seen as having a better chance to thrive, you know, um, as an adult speaking fluent English versus your own. And so um, that concept of place knowing then is uh, really intended to just help us um, return back to ourselves and like, you know, our ancestral knowledge and our ancestral wisdom, because, um if we don't do that, then we're, we're going against what has been already set up and framed within Indigenous planning as a scholarship, which is, you know, how do you leverage your culture and your identity to inform like culturally appropriate practices for planning and design. And um, so I think Art Place America uh, really enjoyed that um, and found a benefit for us to explore that for ourselves because not only is there the practice in a, uh, of, of doing that work, but there's actually the theoretical philosophical underpinnings that are being developed and written about that becomes part of the, you know, overall creative placemaking um, scholarship and literature that, um, we can at least see other folks citing and using, you know, from here on forward. Um, and I think that was part of like their impact that they wanted to make too, is just not to have um, placemaking be uh, an adjective or um, a, a verb to describe like what was occurring in our communities. But yeah, more so of like, how do we make an institutional impact? Um, because, you know, once information is shared and made and published from like a university or from academics, then in perpetuity, then that that becomes uh, part of the human uh, knowledge base, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, I think that's why they uh, that's why they really enjoyed us. And um, and. I'm hopeful that we'll continue to like develop and cultivate this kind of scholarship so that our children can can reference us and cite us in the future. Um, so yeah, I, I think there's a lot of great work there. With with all that as a foundation, um, what how would you apply that to, um, well, the question is uh, how, 
how do opportunities present themselves to you? Um, you know, as you move through your career, they, they, they come in one form or the other, and those opportunities change in different ways as you advance through. And of course, with all that you've just said as a foundation, how do you apply that to these opportunities or potential opportunities? Well, I would say, I think it first comes to me as like a thought, obviously, (laughs) Um, but more so of like a feeling, like it's just like a fleeting thought, you know, like, "Hmm, I wonder if this would work. And then it kind of stays with me. And then um, I like to describe it as like breadcrumbs um, that the Holy Ones and the universe are leaving for me to pick up on. And so in our family, we always, as part of our prayer, we will say like, you know, please keep our ears and our eyes open to the opportunities that might be presenting themselves to us. Um, And so in that way, uh, I guess a, a concrete example is like, a question has come up is like, Hmm, what, what am I going to do after I finish my PhD? Well, uh, I definitely know I want to go for a postdoc. And I've only come across like what a postdoc is and means from other newly minted PhD friends of mine. And of course, you know, talking with Ted and Dr. Harjo about like what they were doing after they got their PhD. And oftentimes like they found themselves as a next step in a postdoc. And what the postdoc, as I've come to understand it, is that you're basically taking your dissertation project that you've worked on and you use that two, three years at another institution to build on the research you've done so that it might land you in a opportunity like writing a book or doing a lot of publications because, and that, that particular process becomes important then if you're going to find yourself in a professor professorial um, position where you want to become tenured and that comes with its own sort of challenges and struggles too as a BIPOC uh, uh, academic and scholar um, who wants to find themselves working at a university. Um, So yeah, so I want to do a postdoc and I'm already thinking that the two places I want to go are going to be either at Oklahoma University with Dr. Harjo. I haven't talked to her yet, but I'm hoping she'll be like, yes, let's come on over. Um, And then second option is like Kansas State University, because within my work at IDPI, we've been able to cultivate a six-year relationship with them. And as part of my dissertation project, then I am considering like, Uh, incorporating the idea and concept of brownfields as it relates to our communities by way of the school sites, which are the old boarding schools, the old day schools um, that are no longer being used um, in our community because at least in my community's um, history, they've had to decide if they wanted to use them. The school board had to decide if they wanted to use the funds to do a complete renovation of the old boarding school um, or close that and then build a whole new school. And oftentimes a lot of Navajo uh, school boards will choose the latter part, which um, 
then means that the old boarding school becomes a site that gets underutilized and often becomes blight in our communities. And so um, how do we um, sort of repurpose them toward a community like programming or, you know, because we're already strapped for cash in as it is with like capital infrastructure monies to build new buildings. And so if these buildings are still um, sound enough, then we can maybe, yeah, think about how we want to reuse them. And um, so, yeah, because I have, because of that Brownfields thread, then it would at least open me up to um, pursuing like a research, uh, research position like at KSU. And um, through prayer and just like putting it out in the universe, then um, I think that's kind of how opportunities get presented to me. It's because like, oh, it just there's a clear path to X, Y and Z of my next steps. And I end up uh, following through on a lot of those anyways. And it's through networking, it's through um, and just being myself too, like. I'm genuinely interested and excited about Brownfields and its application in um, towards like school sites. And um, so I don't know, I, I think it's, it's just one of those things. And the latest I've been told is, um, you know, Michaela, we love you and we want to see you be successful. This is from another colleague. So, um, you know, let's really try to figure out how we want to apply for grant monies so that you can have um, a postdoc here, like at OU or at KSU. Um, and that is uh, really great because I think it's Holy Ones and um, the creator saying like, um, you're not going to do this alone and we're going to keep sending you the people that are going to help you fulfill this like dream of yours. And as of late, like I, w by following these breadcrumbs, um, I feel like I'm back on my divine path uh, because everyone has a purpose and it's up to us to, you know, be on this like constant, um, reflection of like our actions and what we're doing and sometimes you'll know that you're not on your path because it doesn't feel right and it's you up against a lot of challenges that just seem to keep coming but um through all that then like there's this persistence and reliance on prayer and faith that it will work out and um so yeah I I think that's how I would answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like this naturally brings us to the next one. And that's um, what would you say to the 18 to 22 year old that's listening to this conversation? <sighs> so I would definitely say I could, and I'm speaking from experience where um, last year for me was not the best time. And that's because I was going through a lot um, mentally and emotionally and spiritually. Um, maybe it was the hormones of, you know, having my son being 
uh, grown inside me. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but there was also, I was feeling at the time, a lot of um, uh, uncertainty and stressors that were coming up from my family. And at one point, I um, had to, I guess, realize that what I was doing with my sisters um, to help our family was called like crisis management, you know, because it seems like everything was just falling apart and in our family. And that was a very scary time. Um, and so like two things is that, or three things. First is that if you are finding yourself in a place where you feel like your world is falling apart and you just don't know which fire to put out or which, you know, because it really was like that, like one thing after another. And it's like, this is spirit breaking, you know, this is heartbreaking. Um, but the thing that got, got me through um, is one, like there's the prayer aspect of it, because sometimes there are things just totally out of your control. And the only thing that you really can do is offer a prayer. And also with the prayer, it's like sometimes that is what you can only offer if, you, if it's not monetary too. you know, like people need money, people, uh, people need, yeah, people need money. And so it's like, okay, I can't help you there, but I'll at least offer prayer. And then second is um, being productive with all of the stresses that you have going on in your life. Don't let your stresses ever become something that is a detriment to you. So like, um, do not try to tell yourself that, oh, well, I'm so stressed. Like I'm going to have, I'm going to drink, you know, for example, and that is not, that's, that's destructive, not productive. So like, if you're, so like for me, um, if I ever get really stressed out, then I like to sign up for a race or something and um, take out all of my stresses and stuff on like running. And then um, and instead of like it being a, a destructive behavior that I start for myself. Um, and then third, uh, I found it very helpful to seek therapy. Um, and I still am in therapy and I've come to learn and realize that with therapy, it's, it's um, something that can just be part of your life for a little bit or for the rest of your life. It just depends. Um, but, and thankfully I, I found a therapist that is, um, uh, Native American and um, also like works under a new um, kind of like ind indigenous uh, centered um, therapy um, business. So like I've been able to, to tap into that as a resource for myself. Um, but yeah, I would say if you're going through hard times, it's, it's not going to be forever. It's temporary. And it's always important to be forward looking no matter what. And, you know, you'll be walking through a dark tunnel, but there is a light that's glimmering at the end of it that you're going to see it through. And um, there is nothing. And one thing I tell myself is 
wow, whatever comes my way, I can handle. <laughs> you know, so like I just tell myself that all the time. I think that's great. Yeah. You know, um, with things that are coming our way right now, you know, and I've, I've read this recently, um, we've conquered everything that's come our way beforehand, you know, so the next thing is, it's no bigger than what it was before, you know, um, you know, one can tackle whatever's in front of us, because we have a lot of experience in the past. So with all that said, what do you what do you have going on right now? Well, I have spent the last few years, like focusing on uh, attending conferences that have prop been talking about the IDPI work, you know, and um, but now is the time for me to start talking about my dissertation project. Um, and so I'm going to take, you know, and it, I guess it, it's appropriate now because I've gone through my coursework and I'm at the point now in my PhD program where I have to really start to get a better handle on like how I'm going to talk about my project because how I talk about my project is going to be written into my research prospectus um, and then which is the plan that is going to launch me into the field work Um, and the field work is then going to allow me to make analysis uh, that will be written out in my dissertation. So um, the next of then so the the subsequent um, conferences that are coming up are going to just be related to that. And my first uh, conference that I'm attending that is only to talk about my dissertation work is um, uh, me co-paneling with other PhD students uh, who are also doing their dissertation projects within the realm of indigenous planning. Um, and we'll be going to Chicago in uh, next month um, to attend the ACSP conference. It's the American Collegiate Schools of Planning Conference. And so, um, yeah, that'll, that'll kick off like uh, those kind of conferences for me. And then when Art Place did sunset, um, I retained a lot of my uh, friend, colleague, uh, friendships with many of them. And um, it's from that relationship, kinship of working together and knowing each other and working well with each other that um, some of us have been able to co-found a um, giving circle called Vital Little Plans. And it's um, basically us pulling our money together in order to re-give that pool of money toward another BIPOC artist collective or individual. Um, And so we will be going to Puerto Rico to talk about that in November. Um, And share what we've learned about the giving circle and like how it might be um, something for other folks to consider, uh, especially if philanthropic monies are not making their way back to, you know, the community that is um, already marginalized. Um, So yeah, those are things that I got going on right now. 
that sounds really interesting. Uh, that that circle that you set up there. I, I wish I knew more about that. That's that's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Um, one one question I, I asked artists, and I don't know if this would really apply to you, but um, is there a way for the listener to get in touch with you if they wanted to connect with the work that you're doing? Um. Yes. So if you want to connect on like the indigenous planning. Um, applied side of that work, then you could find me at um, you or no idpi.unm.edu. Or you can find me personally on Instagram at uh, mshirl01. Um, I haven't gotten to a place where I have like a website that people can go to to like learn about my work and stuff. But I think that'll be, that'll come later. Well, Michaela, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. This is really great having you here. Yeah. And I hope, you know, what, what's been shared has, is useful and helpful to folks. And um, because what you're doing is really amazing. And I just love uh, what I was able to hear from your podcast. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for sharing your story as well. It's, it's part of that whole collective. Yeah, and if, it, if there was any part of that storytelling of my on my part that was like, you know, going all over the place, well, I think that's just indigenous storytelling for you. <laughs> I was going to say, we're Native, that's, that's how we tell our stories. <laughs> <laughs> and that does it for this episode of Five Plain Questions. I want to thank Michaela again for her time and sharing her story with us. With these conversations with the podcast, it, it's really important to have voices like Michaela, who are architects and city planners, uh, part of these conversations, because ultimately, our galleries, our museums, our community centers, uh, places where we gather and have meetings, they're designed by creative people. You know, I I think sometimes we get lost in the idea that 2D and 3D uh, visual artists and musicians and poets and, and the like are the definition of what creativity is but sometimes we forget you know that those who create the actual structures and design the landscape uh, within these settings are also artists and they're sort of the first artists the ones who sort of inspire us in the places that we create and showcase our work so it was very important for me to include Michaela on this podcast and within the series of these conversations just because of the work that she and her colleagues do. So, Michaela, thank you so much for this. This was uh, an honor and an absolute pleasure to have you on. And, you know, of course, best of luck in your PhD pursuits and your growing family. Uh, it was really great to speak with you. I also want to thank you for joining us and spending your time listening to what I feel is a very important story and perspective from our community. So please, join us next time as we speak with another incredible person. I'm Joe Williams. You can find me on our Facebook page, our Instagram page, on X, which used to be Twitter. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's uh, either Five Plain Questions podcast or Creativity Among Native American Artists, I think is still the handle on a couple of different um, platforms. But yeah, there. Um, and of course, our Plains, uh, Plains Art website, uh, plainsart.org website. Uh, there you can see our programming, our past videos, and these podcasts. So, uh, 
we're nearing the end of the, the season, so uh, our guest list uh, has been set. So anyway, to keep listening. There's a lot of great conversations and some really big uh, guests coming on, which I'm excited about. That said, you take care, and we will see you next time. This has been an Eleven Warrior Arts production.